Are you loving? This is the big question that hangs over top of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you remember in context, 1 Corinthians 13 was not just written so we would have something pretty to read at weddings, but it it serves a distinct purpose, a purpose that is rhetorical, one that plays heavily into Paul's argument. He, He wants us to see this chapter because really this chapter answers all the problems that exist in Corinth. If the Corinthians could just be loving towards one another, then all of their other problems would be erased. He drops chapter 13 right down between chapters 12 and chapters 14, which concern the most contentious issue that exists in Corinth, the issue of spiritual gifts. If you remember at the beginning of chapter 12, they've asked this question to which Paul is responding, who is it that's really spiritual? Who are the spirituals among us? Who is it that is spirit-filled? And Paul responds by telling them it's the person that loves Jesus, has been converted to Jesus, has the gifts of the Spirit of Jesus, and is knit to the body of Jesus. And last time we were together in chapter 13, we looked at how Paul contrasted for us the greatest of spiritual gifts with love. Did that in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 13 and with verses 8 through 11 in chapter 13. And what we learned is that love is greater than the spiritual gifts. It's more important than them. It empowers the gifts to do what they are supposed to do, which is to build up the body of Christ. What was going on in Corinth was the gifts were dividing the body of Christ. And Paul is saying, if you... Have not love when you are exercising these gifts. I'm not even sure if you are a Christian because love is the distinguishing mark of a Christian. And so the question we want to ask and answer today, am I loving, requires that we first define love, look at its characteristics, and then think about how we can cultivate it together. That's our outline this morning. We're going to have a quick definition of love, talk about the characteristics of love, quickly, I hope, and then we're going to talk about how we can cultivate love in our lives. The main idea written on your insert there is that Christian love includes actions and affections. We could even make it simpler and say that love feels and does. Love feels and does. And I want to exhort you this morning to be the church by loving one another. Let's pray, and then we will get started. Father, help us to nail the monster of unbelief to the cross once more again this morning. Help us to forsake living in accord with our old nature, and to walk in the newness of resurrection life which is offered to us in Christ Jesus. Help us to sing and pray and listen and preach in such a way that it puts a smile on your face, a laugh in your throat, and a joyful mist in your eyes. 
God, this morning we pray that you would give us ears to hear the good news and feet to dance in response to the rhythm of grace. God, help us to rejoice in your word. Help us to experience the gospel again this morning as if for the first time. Remind us what love is. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is love? I think some things are actually better pointed to or experienced rather than defined, like the Grand Canyon or the birth of a child or feeling the warmth of the fire on your skin on a cold December day. Love is really hard to nail down, and and it, it was hard for me to think about the past few weeks. It's been hard for philosophers throughout history, but I think what has helped me think about it is to think of it in two ways, that love feels and love does. So love feels, this is kind of like the love a parent has for their child, right? Baby doesn't do anything, but but make a few messes every now and again. But man, that's, that's your kid, and you love them. Not because of anything they did, but simply because you, you delight in them. This is a love that feels. It's a satisfied love, a, a delighted love. On the other hand, we have a love that, that does. This is a love that takes action. In the same way, parents take action on behalf of their children. When the kids make a mess, mom and dad clean it up. Parents leverage the whole of their lives to the end of helping their children to be happy, to be joyful. Love feels and love does. Love requires both affection and action. And typically, two errors occur when we attempt to define or even think about love. On the one hand, you have folks that say, love is action only. Love is a verb. It's not what you feel, it's just what what you do that matters. This is the kind of person that that says, I have to love them, but I don't have to like them, right? That's nonsense, first of all. You can't say, I love Jesus, but I don't like him. Love my kids, but I don't like them. Love my wife, but don't like her. It doesn't make any sense. But I think what's underneath of the sentiment of love them, but don't like them, is this idea that, as long as I act loving to them, I've loved that person. But it just doesn't work out. Uh, uh, if you think about the old flower analogy, right? If I take Chelsea flowers on our anniversary and I give them to her and I say, I got you these flowers for our anniversary because it's our anniversary and that's my duty. Kind of had to. She's not going to be too thrilled with the flowers, right? But if I take the flowers to our anniversary and I say, Darling, I saw these flowers, and they are lovely as you are lovely. Beautiful as you are beautiful. And I wanted you to know that I delight in you. I love you. If he's going to say, what did you do? <laughs> but she's going to be more delighted in the flowers. It's, it's a gift that is acceptable because love can't just do, it needs to feel. The, the other extreme, the other extreme way we define love in a way that I, I don't think is right is we say that love only feels. It doesn't matter what you do as long as you have these feelings. 
Feelings drive everything. And, and this likewise is, is, just doesn't work, right? If I, if I tell my wife I love you every day, but I never do anything that shows her I love her, I might not really love her. Like if I say, I'm willing to lay my life down for you, but I can't change that diaper. I can't do the dishes. Not willing to. I don't know that I really love her. Love requires doing. Right? The same way if I, if I tell you that I love fishing, but I don't own a fishing pole. I never go. I don't have a fishing boat. I don't even watch fishing on TV. I assume it's on TV. Everything is. And when you press me, I can't even bait a hook, you're going to determine that guy doesn't really love fishing because he never, he never does it, right? L- love feels and does. And this is how God's love functions in our lives. Right? This is how God has defined love. His love is the gold standard. It's what we should shoot for. We want to love like God loves. And how does God love? Well, he feels an affection for his people and he acts on behalf of his people. Probably the most popular Bible verse of all time tells us this, right? John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God loves the world. He loves us so much that he sends Jesus into the world to die on our behalf so that we can have life. His love feels and it acts. Like God doesn't love you because you are worthy or because you've been in church every Sunday for the last year, which I don't think is maybe any of you. Maybe one or two. I'll go back. We'll check the records. He doesn't love you because you've done anything. He loves you because you're you. He just, he just does. He delights in you. I mean, you're just like a little baby. All you've done is make a bunch of messes all over yourself. And his love does. It acts. He, he sent Christ to be a propitiation for our sin to live a perfect life in our place, to die a perfect death in our place, and to rise and sit at the right hand of God to hold our place in heaven. His love does. He comes and he cleans us up from our mess, acts for our good and for his glory. Love both feels and does. And we'll see that that love both acts, and involves affections in Paul's description of love here in verses 4 through 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And and there are 15 of these bad boys, and I'm going to try to make my way through them uh, rather quickly. Uh, And so there'll be questions, but what I want you to be thinking in your mind as we um, consider them is, "Am, am I loving going to read the whole thing and then circle back around. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not irritable. It does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love is patient. 
says love has a, a long fuse. I don't think any of us are like this naturally, right? Nobody likes to have their plans interrupted. No one likes to sit in traffic. No one likes to wait in line at the supermarket. No one likes to go to the DMV. No one likes to have their plans interrupted. But what happens when we do have our lives interrupted and troubles come, we automatically get critical and we grumble and we murmur because we have a lack of patience, a lack of perspective on what God might be doing in our lives. I wonder, who tries your patience? What tries your patience? And what does that reveal about your love? Are you loving? Love is kind. This one seems straightforward enough. Most of us, I think, well, I'm kind. I don't know. Because this, this command that love is kind and we are to be loving all the time requires that, that we be kind to those that are unkind, right? Jesus tells us in Luke 6, verse 32, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. Yes, it's easy to love your children and your grandma and your grandchildren, but do you love people that are unkind to you? What does your kindness to others reveal about your love? Are you loving Love does not envy. So love doesn't say, I would do a way better job in, in his spot. Or she's not even that pretty. Or maybe my, my personal favorite, and you've probably heard me say this, and so I'm revealing some sin here, uh, must be nice. Right? So my response, people tell me things that they're doing. Oh, I'm on vacation here, and it's awesome, and I'm, must be nice. And, and what's, what's underneath of that is, I think I would probably enjoy it more than you. Right. I should probably be in that spot instead. What, what envy does is it, it thinks that it deserves something more than the person who has it. And what happens when you kind of have this desire to win and have what someone else has, you sabotage your ability to be loving. When you envy, you can't rejoice in the gifts of others. But when you envy, you can't rejoice in what other people have. And a good, good question to ask yourself is, have I ever celebrated, am I able to celebrate the successes of others? Or do I find myself kind of grumbling? I would have done better. I should have that. This opportunity should have been mine, not hers. When we envy, we reveal that our joy is rooted not in Christ, but in the things that we have What does your envy reveal about your love? Are you loving? Love is not boastful. It is not arrogant. I love the verb for arrogant here. It literally means to be puffed up. And it gives me this weird image in my head, and this probably is just going to make you go, what? But if you've ever seen a hot air balloon, 
I just picture someone's head on, on the hot air balloon part just being puffed up and kind of floating into the sky. Right? Like the be arrogant is to be puffed up. You think the world of yourself. You, you talk about yourself all the time. You don't listen to other people. That is a good question if you're considering whether or not you're arrogant. Do you listen to other people when they talk? Or you just look for an opportunity to jump in and say what you have to say? Or maybe a better question. How, how much of your behavior is aimed at bringing attention to yourself? Bragging and arrogance can reveal to us the quality of our love for others. I wonder, are, are you loving? Love is not rude. That is ill-mannered. And I googled for this one, uh, and it gave me a few laughs, but I'm only going to give you three of the results. The most rude behaviors was my Google, something akin to that. And here are three of them. Number one, talking on the phone in a movie theater. Rude. Just in case you're wondering what rude is. Uh, Number two, not picking up after your dog. Hopefully that one doesn't need any further explanation. Rude. And the third one, Uh, driving slow in the passing lane. Rude. I'm not going to mention any names, right? Do you consider others? Or do you mostly just consider yourself? How you consider others will reveal the quality of your love. Are you loving? Love is not self-seeking. Love's not, it's not selfish. It's not me first. It looks to the interests of others first. We saw a whole bunch of this in um, the chapters on meat offered to idols, right? Chapters 8 through 11. Remember back in chapter 10, uh, verse 24, Paul says, No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. It's kind of the whole point of those chapters. Don't worry about if you're allowed to eat meat or not eat meat. If you eating meat causes your brother to sin, give up that freedom. Don't lead them into sin because it's most loving to give up your rights for the good of the other person. Friends, you can't love well if you demand your rights. You can't love well if you are clinging to what you ought to have or ought to be able to do. Love requires a loss of freedom. Parents know this. When you have children, you give up freedoms that you once endured or endured, enjoyed. <laughs> Minor things like sleep, silence, and a social life. You give these things up. But notice When you lose freedom and seek the joy of others, because that's what you're doing as a parent when you give up those things, you're, you're after the joy of your children. Your love is not disinterested. And what I mean is there's no such thing as a disinterested lover. See, your joy, you get your joy by seeking the joy of your children first. Does that make sense? Or if you're married, uh, one of the old, I don't know if it's a... Uh, 
is it a platitude or just like a maxim? It's a wise saying. A happy wife, happy life. Right? Y'all know that one. The idea behind that is, if I, maybe you never considered it, but the idea is, if I serve my wife, if I work to make my wife happy, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to be happy. So what I'm trying to say here is to be self-seeking doesn't mean that your joy doesn't matter. doesn't mean that your happiness doesn't matter. What it means is that I'm not seeking me first. I'm seeking the joy of other people ahead of myself. And this crazy thing happens because it's how God has made us. When I seek the joy of others as my joy, I end up happy, right? Their joy becomes my joy. A parent is delighted in the success of their children. The same thing. When my wife is happy, I'm typically happy. When you put someone else's joy ahead of yourself. And so the question is, are you selfish or do you pursue the joy of others? Whose joy you pursue primarily will reveal the quality of your love. Are you loving? Love is not irritable. That is, uh, it doesn't fly off the handle because someone else used all the hot water uh, or didn't replace the trash can liner or hung the toilet paper roll the wrong way. Right? And there's a wrong way and a right way. Right? If somebody hangs it underneath, that's wrong. It goes over the top. Amen. It's not irritable. It's not going to get upset at these minor things. It's not going to fly off the handle. Self-controlled. It does not keep a record of wrongs. This one, I couldn't help myself. It just brought into my mind, have you all seen Seinfeld, I hope, and maybe I've used this before, I don't know. Uh, there's a Festivus episode around Christmas time. And, and what happens is, is George's family comes up with an alternate, I think it's an alternative to Christmas called Festivus. And every year, it's just like a pole instead of a tree. It's really bland and not really exciting or loving. And you have the Festivus dinner. And after the Festivus dinner, you have the tradition of the airing of grievances. And what you do during the airing of grievances is you tell everybody in the family how they've disappointed you throughout the year. Right? That's what keeping a record of wrongs is. And let me tell you, if you keep a record of wrongs like that, if you are preparing for Festivus in your heart, bitterness will grow and it will strangle your love to death. It will strangle your love to death. I mean, this is so, so important in any relationship. I think particularly in the marriage relationship. Because what we tend to do in marital relationships is take little stones when our spouse does something wrong, and we like write down what that wrong is, and then we just put it in our pocket and carry it around with us until the time is right. And then the next big argument, when we think we've got them, we start taking those stones out and just chucking them. And people get hurt. Love forgives. Are you forgiving? Or are you allowing grudges to strangle 
your love for someone else. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Two things here. First, love finds no joy in unrighteousness. What this, well, let me back up. I think Charles Hodge gets the, the flavor of this verse. I'm going to read his quote to you. He says, This is true religion to approve what God approves, to hate what God hates, and to delight in what God delights in. I think what this means is that we, we don't delight when things go wrong for other people. So this isn't the, you know, if you've ever taken great pleasure in telling someone, I told you so. I don't know that I've ever done that. It's not loving. And it means that you don't offer people unconditional affirmation. I think this is another wrong perspective on love, that that to be loving, that just means I have to affirm or accept you no matter what. Never have to be confrontational. But that's that's just a compromise of principles. It's not love. Love has the boldness and the willingness to correct wrong behavior. It has the kindness to help someone pursue what's best for them. So like if, if you had a friend who somehow had mistaken hemlock for bay leaves and insisted on cooking with it, hemlock kills you, I think. If not, pick your, pick your poison. They're cooking with something poisonous and they're seasoning their food and somehow they've survived through a few meals uh, <laughs> seasoning it with hemlock. And then you go over to their house and they're like, I just love this new, this new seasoning and I'm going to put it in everything. And if you just go, that's great, let me affirm that. Like you're condemning them to death. But what the loving person would do is say, that's going to kill you. Like I'm glad that you're enjoying it, but it's poison. Love doesn't rejoice in sin. It doesn't stand idly by and allow others to walk a road that is wide and broad and leads to death. There is a way that seems right in the heart of a man, but its end is death. We need to be those who lovingly, and that's very key, are willing to correct wrong and sinful behavior in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice also love rejoices in the truth, delighting in what God delights in. I wonder, do you delight in what God delights in? What gives you the most joy in life? that things that are good and, and holy and true or something else? What you rejoice in will reveal the quality of your love. Are you loving? Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Things. Verse 7, the word there for bears could also be brought across, put up with. 
I like that way, that it puts up with everything. It supports you through anything and everything. When things get really, really difficult, love does not quit. It continues on. It believes all things. When love believes all things, what that's saying is it gives others the benefit of the doubt. Trust them. It doesn't hold against them past failures. I love C.S. Lewis says that every man should have a fair-sized cemetery in which to bury the faults of his friends. Do you have a cemetery in which you bury the faults of others? Or are you hiding them away on rocks in your pocket or as seeds that are growing in your heart? It hopes all things and endures all things. Love it's not, it's not this just kind of fantasful, fantasful hope, but a hope that's tied to reality. It's a, a certain hope that looks forward to the eternal. It lifts its eyes off of the temporary to that which will last forever and says, my hope is in Christ Jesus, who is the embodiment of love and the situation right now might be dire. It might feel like I'm being crushed by the weight of evil and the weight of wickedness, but a better day is coming. God will make all things right. My hope will not disappoint me. It endures all things. It doesn't give up. Love is committed committed. So quick test. What we do, and you've probably heard this before, but everywhere you see love in the passage, just take a moment and replace it with your name. And then see how far you can read before it becomes utterly false. So what, what do we do if we are unloving? How can we cultivate love in our lives. I think that we have to get into relationship with the first lover, the author of love, the one whose name we can put in that blank and these statements still remain true. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy He does not boast. He is not arrogant. He is not rude. He is not self-seeking. He is not irritable. He keeps no record of wrongs. He does not find joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. He bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Indeed, Jesus bore your sin and endured the cross, despising its shame in order to sit down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 12 tells us, for the joy set before him, and that joy was the presence of the Father and your fellowship. Jesus sought our joy as his joy. He loved perfectly so that we might know what love is. And I think we we get a great picture of of how Christ's love compels us to love in Luke chapter 7. Luke 7, starting at verse 36, we, we read a familiar story. 
Then one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. At the time, you need to remember, their tables are much lower than ours. And so they would kind of like lean on an arm up at the table and put their feet out away from the table. Just context. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would know what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She is a sinner. Now notice this, this guy says this to himself like he thinks it. And then we read in verse 40, Jesus replied to him, I love it, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, Jesus told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That is why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. It's a ton here, and I'll resist preaching the whole thing to you. I want to look at this parable Jesus tells the creditor has two debtors, one owes 500 denarii and the other 50. The point is not the amount of the debt, but that whether it's 50 or 500, the debt is unpayable by the person that owes it. And so if you have ever been poor, you might understand how 50 could feel like 500. Because it might as well be 500 because you ain't got 50, right? It's unpayable. But the creditor graciously forgave them both. Listen now. We all owe a great debt of sin to God that we cannot pay back. But God has graciously loved us and forgiven the debt when we trust in Christ. And if you have been forgiven much, if you've believed in Jesus and been forgiven, then you will love much. Right? Love is the receipt that proves the debt has been canceled. If you have been forgiven by Jesus, you will love Jesus. And if you love Jesus, Jesus, you will love his people. 
first way to cultivate love in your life is to contemplate how much you have been forgiven. It is to contemplate the glories of the cross until your heart melts with joy. Until you get to that broken point when you would be willing to go to Jesus' feet and wet them with your tears and wipe them with your hair because you know you have been forgiven. It's not something you earned. You deserved to be thrown into debtor's prison. You deserved hell, but he took that for you so that you could have heaven. I mean, it's not, it's not like you went to pick up a paycheck. Right? Like when you do the work and you show up to pick up a paycheck from somebody, you're not going, oh, thank you. Can't believe you paid me this week. No, you're going, I did the work. I deserve to be paid. This is, this is expected. But what Jesus does for us is unexpected. He, he doesn't owe it to us. The one who has been forgiven much loves much. Friends, the number one killer to your feelings of love for Jesus and for one another is your unbelief. John Bunyan says, unbelief has more lives than a cat. And so we have to keep killing it by by nailing it to the cross. We have to keep dwelling on the gospel until our hearts are warmed to Christ. We have to believe in Jesus. Look to the author of love to overcome feelings of unlove. That's, that's step one. Step two, sometimes, even though we commit ourselves to dwelling on the gospel, we have some feeling for God. We know we love God. It just doesn't seem like those feelings will come. So, so what do I do? Well, you act lovingly. You do the actions of love even when the feelings of love are absent. This funny thing happens. The feelings sometimes follow the actions. Feelings are really fickle things, right? Let's say I woke up tomorrow and I didn't feel married to my wife. That doesn't mean that I should build an eHarmony profile and and go out and try to find true love. No means I should act loving until those feelings uh, are fanned back into flame. It is so funny how when you act loving towards someone, your feelings of love for them grow. Again, I've been using the parent-child analogy so much today, but you know, every time you change a diaper, you might not like it, but something happens in you. You're caring for, for that child that's not done anything for you. But the more you care for them, the more you, you love them. These feelings grow through hardship. Like Sometimes feelings of love may, may just seem so distant. But the deeper desire to love God and others will drive you to do the actions of love and will lead you back to that place where your affections have been uh, rekindled. It's a little bit like like climbing a mountain. Mountain climbers will tell you it is awful sometimes. Like you break fingers, you lose limbs, it gets really cold at night. It's harsh. But standing on top of that mountain is worth it. It's exhilarating. And so loving one another 
And loving God, being committed to that, is harsh. It's hard work. Oh, but it's exhilarating. It's, it's worth it to make sure that your love is becoming like God's. That it's feeling and acting in response to Jesus. Love feels and it acts. Love is committed. Love's committed so that it can grow and flourish even when sunshine feelings aren't there. Christian love can grow in the dark. And one of the primary ways that God has given us to express and experience his love is in the church. I want to turn to 1 John chapter 4. Starting with verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation, that is the atoning sacrifice, for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son as the world's Savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and the one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. In this love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he first loved us. Well, that song, Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first loved me. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. He means brother or sister in Christ, fellow church member. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. And the way we love our brothers and sisters is the same way we love Jesus. It's not just in feeling, it's also in action. Jesus said, if you love me, then you will obey my commands. We love Jesus by obeying his commands. And one of his commands just so happens to be that we gather together as the church, that we bear one another's burdens as the church. The best way to express your love for God is by loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. But it is not easy. Because our brothers and sisters are annoying and irritating. 
They drive us to the end of our patience. Some of them are self-seeking and arrogant. But they're not supposed to, they're perfected in Christ, yes. But they, like you and like me, are in progress, are being made more and more like Christ. And the way we become more and more like Christ is by continuing to rub elbows with one another, by continuing to bury one another's faults in our cemetery that exists for that end. Love is hard. It's easy to love people that love you. It's much harder to love people that you maybe find unlovely. But I promise you, if you love the unlovely in a sustained way, they will become lovely to you. Love is hard and you can't take any, any shortcuts to it. It has to be a priority. If you feel your love for God and for your neighbor growing cold and you haven't been coming to church, and you haven't met with God in prayer, and you haven't been reading his word, you shouldn't be surprised. Your heart follows your priorities. Jesus has to be a priority in your life if you are going to love him. And at some point, we need to just be honest with ourselves and admit, I'm just too busy is a euphemism for I'm too lazy to live by the right priorities. I think too many of us are willing to love one another with our hearts, but not with our calendars. What's your priority? Because love is hard, and there are no shortcuts to it. I heard the story recently of a girl from Brown University who went on a trip to uh, the coast of North Carolina where she was living with rural people in a rural place. And she recounts the trip and she says, I learned the greatest lesson of my college career from a woman named Miss Ellie who, li- who was in her 90s. She lived in a one-room wooden home down a dirt road. And Heidi and Miss Ellie would sit on the front porch and drink tall glasses of sweet tea. And their conversations would be punctuated by unfamiliar sayings like Miss Ellie exclaiming, Girl, I'd be so happy I could jump the sky. This unusual friendship continued to blossom throughout the summer and Heidi made an observation. Miss Ellie would go out every day and take this really long walk miles and miles to her friend Miss Nettis. Along the way she would stop to look in on who she called uh, the old people and visit with some other friends but, but Miss Netta was, was the goal. And Heidi says I felt bad for Miss Ellie having to walk all that way. And then I thought of it. Great idea. I would build her a bridge. You see, Miss Ellie didn't actually live that far from Miss Netta. It was just a large uh, kind of river in between the two properties. And you had to go quite a ways before it narrowed enough to cross. So she says, we're, we're going to build a bridge so that she can go right, right to Miss Netta's. So she gets a bunch of guys together, and in about a day, they throw the bridge up. She says, I was so excited uh, to show Miss Ellie our bridge. I interrupted our our usual stories during tea, and I I brought her down by the river, and I said, look, a shortcut to Miss Netta's. She said, Miss Ellie paused and responded in a way I, I wasn't quite ready for. Child, she said, 
I don't need no shortcut. And then she proceeded to explain that along her way to Miss Netta's, she not only stopped to look in on the old people, but to recount the daily news with this friend, exchange biscuits for bread with another friend, to sample another friend's wine. Child, if I took the shortcut, I would cut off all these other relationships. She recounts her saying, Child, there are no shortcuts if you want to have friends. Love and shortcuts don't mix. Friends, some of us have been taking shortcuts in our relationships with God and in our relationships with one another. And we're surprised that our love is growing cold. Some of us don't read his word, don't pray, don't gather together. Some of us sneak in here at the last possible minute and then leave immediately after, and that but once a week. How can you expect feelings of love for God and neighbor to flourish in your life if you are not cultivating them? By dwelling on the gospel. By doing what the gospel requires. By being committed to the cause of Christ. Friends, love acts and love does. It feels And it takes action. Be the church. Love one another. And praise God, Jesus has equipped us to do this better and better each day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come together to love you and love one another in this special worship time but we pray this wouldn't be it. That we wouldn't relegate our worship to an hour a week, tell it to sit in the corner until we come back. But that we would recognize our priorities and our every day is shaping who we are. It's shaping who we really belong to. It's shaping our love. But we pray that you would help us to stop drinking from the broken cisterns of idolatry, comfort. What's best for me at this moment, in my opinion? And to begin drinking from the pure fountainhead of Christ. Lord, we thank you that we are all just not good lovers. (laughs) We all fail one another. We fail you. We thank you that you sent the perfect lover to live in our place and to extend your love to us. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for redeeming idiots like us and calling us to be your people, adopting us into your family and allowing us to bear the name Christian. Make it true of us that the world would know we are Christians by our love. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.